Marlena Fiol, PhD, is a globally recognized author, scholar, and speaker. She explores the depths of who we are and what is possible in our lives. In this interview today, she shares her journey from an abusive upbringing in Paraguay to escape love and loss in the United States and finally on to forgiveness and reconciliation. That's quite the journey. Marlena was physically abused as a child, sexually abused as a teenager, disowned by her father, and banned from participating in her Mennonite church. This all happened before her 18th birthday. And this is just the beginning of her amazing story. Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Thank you for joining me today on Never Ever Give Up Hope. I have not only one, but two guests today on the show. The first I introduced at the top of the show, Marlena, and with her she has Ed O'Connor, who is her co-author in two of the books that she has written. She's going to share her story and whatever Ed is going to share as well as they have been together, which they will share that journey with you as well. So let's start at the beginning and share a bit of your story. Thank you, Carol. It's wonderful to be on your podcast. Um, Thank you for inviting us. And the topic is fabulous. Never, ever give up. And it it can mean things at different levels. And I hope we can delve into that a bit today. But I will. I'll start with my uh, childhood story, and then we'll go from there. My parents were Mennonite medical missionaries in Paraguay, South America. In 1951, when I was the year I was born, they took their five kids, all under the age of seven, (laughs) to Paraguay to found a leprosy hospital in a low German Mennonite community in Paraguay. It's a low German community because uh, my Mennonites, uh, my parents are of Mennonite background, so there were a, a number of Mennonite colonies in Paraguay who helped them establish this this leprosy hospital. And so I grew up uh, in a Mennonite, low German community. And the first 10 years of my life, I went to school in a little one-room schoolhouse on that leprosy station in German. 
my father and my mother who was a nurse, my father doctor, was my hero. And he was uh, he was known throughout the country and in, and and eventually throughout the world for revolutionizing how leprosy is treated on the planet. And we oh can my talk, goodness. we can talk more about that um, later. I think we will. Uh, because it relates very closely also to our second book. But as far as my childhood, um, I both admired him as a hero doctor, and I resented his brutal disciplinarian approach toward me and the confines that he and his Mennonite church put on my life. And so I was a very rebellious kid. At age 10, I was sent to the capital city of of Asuncion, the capital city of Paraguay, to go to school because there were no more uh, teachers that could teach us after the age of 10 on the leprosy station. So here I am on my own, pretty much on my own, unsupervised, naive, rebellious, looking for love, maybe one could say in all the wrong places. And you can imagine that this didn't turn out very well. This is an attractive teenager as she moves on into this story, which again, helps it not turn out well. Yeah. So I was sexually abused by a much older married man. Um, My father, not surprisingly, disowned me. Oh, dear. Uh, My Mennonite church, which... With all of my rebellion against the confines of the Mennonite church, the one thing I loved was to sing those Mennonite hymns. We would sing in four-part harmony, and I played the organ for the Mennonite uh, church services, and the church banned me from participating in any of those services after, well, after I was uh, stood in front of the congregation and told them what I had done, or what had been done to me is the way I see it today. But at the right. time, I thought I was absolutely the sinner, and I understood why they banned me from participating. And in my shame, I escaped to the United States. I'd like to stop you there and ask you a question about how at that age and what you were going through, you dealt with the guilt. I was angry with the world. I was angry with myself. I lashed out against who I was and who everyone around me was. I can only say that I was a very angry person. And in some ways, Carol, if we go to the topic of this podcast, at that time, at that young age, what never giving up meant to me was to continue fighting, Mm. fighting and lashing out and rebelling, uh, maybe not even understanding completely how angry I was at myself. Um, Right. Just knowing I was angry at the world. And that at that time was my understanding of never giving up. I think we will dig a bit deeper into that as we go farther into this story. But I would say at age 18, that's where I was at. So I escaped to the U.S. But the thing is, we never escape from ourselves, do we? Um, So I thought I was escaping. But the truth is, for the next 15 years, I created one disaster after another. And I I think that's sometimes what our anger can do is... uh, 
it's uh, we get beaten down and we come back up fighting. We get beaten down. We get come back up fighting. Never really, or at least I can say for myself, never really confronting that I might have some responsibility in what was happening in my life. I was married twice, divorced twice by the age of 35. I did continue my education. I did push through to outward and worldly success. I became a professor and a consultant of strategic management. Eventually, I just won a marker of sort of the external success. I was uh, chosen to become a fellow of the Academy of Management, which is a 20,000 member organization of management mm-hmm. scholars. It's a very elite group that I was, um, I became a part of. But my inner life was in turmoil. Even uh, at that point? Even at that point. So I had all these external markers of success. But I did experience inner turmoil. Uh, after the second divorce, my memoir describes how I hit rock bottom. And I talk about it as being brokenness. So the title of my memoir is Nothing Bad Between Us, A Mennonite Missionary's Daughter Finds Healing in Her Brokenness. And people have asked me, what do I mean by broken? And in my case, it was stripping Everything was stripped away, even the anger. I was on the floor, a heap on the floor, and finally there was nothing. There wasn't even anger left. And and at the same time, right about that time, as I was in my mid-30s, my father, who was this strong-willed, determined, stubborn doctor who they have personalities that are very similar to each other marlena and her father (laughs) (laughs) he experienced his version of brokenness he finally after pushing his way through barriers that are unbelievable which we can talk about later in this podcast uh to make happen what he did on that leprosy compound and elsewhere in paraguay um he experienced his own dark night of the soul. And in that, at that intersection of our brokenness, we became vulnerable with each other and healing between us became possible. Wow. And the, just to, to end that, that first story about my childhood and my relationship with my father, in 1988, this was... A, a, at a time when there was already some vulnerability in our relationship, but we had not, we hadn't validated it, we hadn't acknowledged it, and my parents asked me to be the MC for their 45th wedding anniversary, which I, I was shocked because, frankly, we still had a a, a, a somewhat uh, it, the relationship was was not comfortable. Right. Okay. Time. And you had siblings who would have fit that role beautifully and who had relationships that were absolutely more positive. So, so I was this I, is out of the blue. This. I, I was a bit uh, shocked, but I did it. And uh, it was a wonderful ceremony. And at the end of it, and I described this scene in my memoir, at the end of it, we're sitting in my parents' living room uh, and my seven siblings and all of their spouses and kids and grandkids and 
just a huge group of people and everyone is talking and carrying on. And I'm sitting quietly with my father on their saggy, squeaky sofa. And I take his hand in mine and I say to him in our native low German, Do as nocht fashion ans. And what that means, translated, is there is nothing bad between us. And he looked at me and he said, Nay, do as nocht fashion ans. And from that day on, that's what we said to each other at every goodbye. And it's the last words we spoke to each other. Uh, And so that's the title of the memoir, Nothing Bad Between Us. That is an amazing title that I believe, even as you're talking, but even also just by looking at the title, people will relate. Because as when I read the title, the, my very first thought was, because of past abuse, those people in my life, I can say that there is nothing bad between us. So I think that many will relate in a you know, in different ways. So that is a very captivating title. And thank you. I know you want to explore that a bit further. I also appreciate your definition of brokenness. That too struck a chord with me as I know it will with many in the audience. So just continue now with whatever part of the story that you would like to share or any part of what we just discussed. Yeah, I, I, I want, just want to say here, uh, thank you for your comments. And I, I, I have been surprised by how many people have come forth and have told me how much they relate to my story. And, and one of the reasons it's, well, it surprises me because I grew up in Paraguay. I grew up on a leprosy camp. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a low German Mennonite community. All of these should be very strange and foreign. And yet, it's incredible how universal our stories are, no matter how how different the settings might be, right? And so that's and we carry these stories with us. Oh yes, that I yes. The thing that I see happening with Marlena is that she put it out so vulnerably in this memoir that it gives other people the courage to step forward and say, yeah, yeah me too. Uh, let me tell you. And so connections that have been made as a result of that are remarkable, having yeah. taken that first step forward. Also, what about your siblings? Now, how were they, how did they respond to you, maybe when you left? And how, did, did you have a good relationship with them? Or were you singled out in the area of abuse, etc.? Just address maybe a couple of those issues there. Yeah, I, I was probably, as Ed mentioned earlier, most like my father. And so the, the beatings I got, according to my older siblings, none of them experienced that the way I did. And so we had a singularly challenging relationship, my father and I, compared to my siblings. I never knew my siblings very well because frankly after the age of around nine or ten we were all shipped out different places to go to school so we didn't really grow up together um i will say that there have been some challenges in the writing um and putting out my story even though my memoir doesn't address my siblings hardly 
uh, hardly at all. And yet there it ruffled feathers, to put it <laughs> mildly, that I would put out our dirty laundry. Uh, right. We, we right. were a respected Mennonite missionary family and Mennonites all over the U.S. and Canada and Germany and elsewhere in the world. Many, many, many people knew of my parents' work and I was putting out dirty laundry and that was not okay. And so I I had to look very, very carefully at my motivations and why was I doing this? And it was for ultimate healing healing for myself and also potentially for readers that this was important. So I, it, it's been a challenging journey in relate and, but they've come around. It's amazing. I have my, my oh. siblings have, especially since we wrote the second book called and which we can get a talk about in a moment, but um, from a very, very challenging beginning when me telling out our dirty secrets, so to speak, was not okay, and they've really come around to understanding how important it is to address some of these right. issues, and and that it doesn't take away from the right. incredible, incredible things that our parents accomplished, which is takes us right to the second book, which is called. Now, before we go into that, we're going to take a quick 30-second break, and when we come back, we'll be talking more with Marlena and Ed regarding called. Thank you. Carol Graham would like to show you the path from misery to miraculous triumph in her fast-paced memoir, Battered Hope. She relates her determination to succeed as someone who experienced one horrendous nightmare after another gang-raped and left for dead, loss of a child, husband falsely imprisoned, and cancer. Nothing could break her tenacity or faith. No matter what you face, heartache, loss, suffering, or injustice, Carol will illustrate how she became a victor the same way you can. The secret is to never, ever give up hope. Order your copy at Amazon or batteredhope.blogspot.com. With me today, I have Marlena and Ed, and now we're going to talk with both of them regarding the second book, because Ed O'Connor was also a co-author. Short story, uh, John and Clara Schmidt, Dr. John and his wife Clara, a nurse, as we've said earlier, were medical missionaries whose their selfless service in Paraguay changed the world. These people went into very, um, whoa, what's the right word? Very difficult conditions. It I'll was, just leave it at that. It was during World War II. Okay. And there were Nazi uprisings in Paraguay when John first showed up there. So that gives you some sense mm-hmm. the world they entered into. Well, it's the word John entered into, and then he took his new bride there for their honeymoon a couple of years later. This world is understandable. We look at Mennonites and say, how could they be Nazi supporters, these peace-loving mm. human beings? Well, they have been stuck out in the Chaco, the western part of Paraguay, which is a place where no white person supposedly was able to live. They wound up there because they escaped from Russia mm. and no place else to go. No other country on the planet would accept them 
Really? With all of the illness they brought with oh, them. Oh, okay. And Paraguay was willing to accept them and uh, push them out into this Chaco region of Paraguay, which was sitting in the um, crosshairs between a war which the Paraguayans were having with the Bolivians. And the Paraguayans say, hey, we'll put these people out there in the Chaco and we'll claim that's our land. And <laughs> Bolivians didn't buy that at all, but that's just background information. So this is the situation that John Schmidt, my father, confronted when at age 30, he became the first doctor for this group of Mennonites out in Paraguay. First doctor to stick anyway. Uh -huh. I had one before who was a guy who flunked out of veterinary school, but called himself a doctor. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, it was very difficult times out there. So these were his people. They came, the, the people that Dr. John uh, was part of came to the United States in the 1870s and uh, turned Kansas wheat fields from uh, wastelands into wheat fields to the breadbasket of America. Uh -huh. And the people who went to Paraguay were of the same background, the same Mennonite background. There are many Mennonite backgrounds, but they were of the same one. And they escaped from Russia at a later point in time in the 1930s, late 1920s. And he felt called to take care of his people. Just coming out of medical school with no background in that kind of work. So he winds up in Paraguay. Well, naturally, these people there want to go back home to Germany. They think Germany will win over Russia and they'll get their land back. And so they're, they're Nazi supporters. Dr. John shows up from the United States, from Kansas, and can't understand, because he has an American perspective, how they could believe this. So he's in the middle of great controversy, which we can settle off to the side for a minute. But he and his wife not only take care of the people in these colonies in the remote area of, Can or of the Chaco in Paraguay, but they actually save open and save hospitals, which are still very successfully operating today. They then came back to the United States, got very bored in living a highly successful life in the United States, very bored, and they needed a challenge. And they were offered this opportunity to go back to Paraguay by the Mennonite Central Committee, who was providing some of the resource support for their work, along with the American Leprosy Mission. They are supposed to go back and build a leprosy colony, uh, colony to confine people uh -huh. the way leprosy people were treated at that right. point in time on the planet. In 1951, leprosy patients were uh, isolated. They were uh, uh -huh. treated like criminals. Like animals. Um, and so this is what he was uh, supposed to do. He was... Uh -huh father was supposed to go to Paraguay in 1951 and start a leper colony. And he had different ideas about Very that. Very different ideas. He decided <laughs> that that was not a humane way to treat people and that he would treat them in their homes. Fairly unheard of at that point in time. He would always say, people with leprosy are not lepers. Do not ever use that word. They are simply people with dignity like you and I who have an illness called Hansen's disease or leprosy. And so what was it called? Out. What was it? What was Hansen, the other name? 
Hansen's disease is another word for leprosy. Okay. And what he was really fighting against was the stigma of calling right. lepers. Yeah. So he'd go out on horseback and find these people in the wilds of who, Paraguay. Who were hiding. Who yeah. were hiding so that they wouldn't be locked up and began treating them that way. And only the very sickest were ever brought back to the leprosy to live, station. To live with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To live with us, yeah. As Marlena says, to live with us, that's factually accurate. And nobody knew at that point in time what caused leprosy. Nobody knew how it spread. So there's a big risk to the family going on here also. Right, of course. His sponsors, the American Leprosy Mission and the Mennonite Central Committee, cut off his funding because he wasn't doing what they sent him down there to do. The Paraguayan government officials said they were going to put him in jail. He had he basically confronted uh, obstacles at every juncture. The people who lived in the area, 81 kilometers east of Paraguay or east of Ascension, east of the capital city, the people in the area did not want leprosy uh, treated in their region for reasons of being very frightened, among other things. And so they also came down on top of him. So he's fighting against his sponsors, fighting against the Paraguay government, fighting against the people in the local region, and continues to move forward. Now, I'm going to ask Marlena to jump in here and tell one story of how the local people treated this effort to treat leprosy patients. My father was in Brazil studying uh, treatment of leprosy in Brazil. Brazil at the time was considered to be the uh, front runner of knowing about leprosy, but their their model was to lock people up. And John, my father, was uh, out there at looking at what they were doing and studying the problem. My mother was at the leprosy compound as it was being built uh, alone because John was in Brazil. And there was a there were a couple of workers there and they were putting some bricks on there. A building was going up. And so she had mortar all over her hands and she she sees a truck coming up over the hill with a bunch of men in the back of the truck with yelling and and uh, drinking from bottles, clearly drunk, a whole bunch of men. And there were rocks in the truck and they were yelling in Spanish. A language she didn't really understand. She didn't even understand, but the coworker who was there working with her said that they were yelling that they were going to kill her and stop this satanic work. Que mueran todos, que que, que mueran aquí, you're you're going to die. And they threw their bottles in the air and came down, took rocks off the the truck. And my mother, clearly petrified, says to them, or says to the coworker, please tell them that I would like to drink coffee and eat Zwiebuck with them. Zwiebuck is... Serve it to them. Serve it to them. Tzvibak is a Mennonite bread. And she had a little bit of Tzvibak out there in, at the building site and some coffee. And she says, please tell them to come. I will serve them Tzvibak and coffee. And the men stopped <laughs> and stared and could not believe this. And they dropped their rocks they drank coffee with my mother. Before and ate, she served that, she said she would like to pray with them. That's right. A bit of the story. And she prayed 
with these men and then serve them coffee and svibok. And this is a true story. They dropped their rocks, they ate and drank with her, and they left and never came back. And so it's a, it's a, it, she, she was such a peace builder. Um, my father was the bulldog, and she came along behind him and was the peacemaker. And so it's their story, their joint story that is in this. They then went on to East Paraguay. And, and did some more incredible revolutionary pioneering things. Saved another hospital, put up their own money to build roads so that the community would survive. So called is- Built a house so that a doctor could be encouraged to come to replace them there, built his house with their own money and money they got from people in North America. So called is this epic tale that spans six decades. And I, I just want to say here that it is not a um, a story we made up or even oh, a story no. that's right. based on anecdotes. It's well there documented. Are, there are 740 written documented references uh, on the books mm. on the book's webpage, which is called asaga.com. And so it is uh, six decades that are all based on recorded written documents about the devoted service of these ordinary people who did extraordinary things and changed the world. The American Leprosy Mission has publicly said they were the first, they were the pioneers in treating leprosy in people's homes rather than locking people up. When, well, where did that stigma come from? Well, you know, it dates back to biblical times. Well, that's if true, you, that's true. If you look at the, at the biblical depiction of those with skin disorders, skin disorders they, were, they were locked up and ostracized. Right, right. And, and, and you know, in, in, in some parts of the world, it still is the case, but it truly has changed. There are, leprosy is still uh, exists in the world today, but there are treatments that allow people now to stay in their homes. And it, it has become the norm what Dr. John and his wife Clara, my parents, uh, revolutionized and pioneered is now the norm in the treatment of leprosy. And how contagious is it? Has that ever been determined? Yes. It has. At the time, in 1951, as Ed already mentioned, people did not know how it spread. Uh, today, we know that uh, you have to have a predisposition. Genetic. Genetic predisposition to begin with to, to, um, <laughs> to get the disease. So it's not like anyone is going to pick up leprosy. People, however, still are... Uh, suffering with leprosy in the United States. Yep. Louisiana is the place where they go for really? care. Really? Huh. Yeah. And in, there, there are as many leprosy patients or people with leprosy in the world today as there were 50 years ago. Oh, my goodness. It's still, but what's different is that there are now ways of treating them that allow them to actually recover if the treatment starts at an early enough point in time. They're treated with, yeah, they can live a normal life with their family and their friends. And this is what is truly different today than in those days. Now, I just wanted to tie back to the story Marlena told about her mother 
it is an example of the kind of material that's in the book called. There are many, many, many such stories. Mm. The a man named Edgar Stowes, who is the uh, was the chairman of the board of the American Leprosy Mission. He was also a high um, An official. In, official in the Mennonite Central Committee. And he's still alive. We've talked to him about his experiences working with Dr. John and, and Clara. And he has quoted as saying, John made a lot of waves. And Clara came along behind him to smooth <laughs> things over. And it is a great story of the way they together as a team never gave up. John would go out there smashing and bashing with his ideas. <laughs> and Car Clara, whom I really loved being with, I had to start to cry here. I had the good fortune of knowing them. And she was just so loving and wonderful to be around. And they did it as a team. They never gave up. Hmm. And made it work with their pieces each of them brought to the party. So I would say, go, going back to the theme of this podcast, it, it called is, as Ed said, truly a story of a couple who never, ever gave up. They fed one obstacle after another, and they pushed their way through. And it was their faith, mm -hmm. their faith in God, as well as their belief in the dignity of mm. every human being, including those who are ostracized, uh, that kept them going and kept them always believing that they would never, ever give up. John's favorite Bible verse uh, says, as I recall, act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. A verse out of the Six, book eight. of Micah. Yeah. yeah. And that's the way he lived life. Absolutely, to the best of his capabilities. And if if I could, I'd love to now say just a little bit about our third book. Oh, absolutely. Please uh, do. And this, the, the, Carries the, the same story forward in it, yet another way. In a different way, yeah. The, the, the working title of this book is Healing the Wound. It is not yet published. Uh, it is the inner life. It traces the inner life of a tragic hero who was Dr. John. He changed the world. He changed how leprosy is treated and he Amazing. changed the world for so, so many people. But he never fully, until the very end, confronted his own inner demons. Hmm. And so it is a it is a it's a memoir of a Mennonite hero and the inner turmoil and his path to inner peace to forgiveness, forgiveness mm -hmm. of himself, forgiveness of those around him. It is a memoir, it is also an allegory, which describes what I believe is a universal longing for peace and for forgiveness, for inner peace and for forgiveness of self and forgiveness of others. And I, I see this as yet another level of never ever giving up there is the external drive that i experienced as a young right. person 
to accomplish great things in the world. There's the external drive to overcome obstacles that my parents relentlessly showed in, in the course of over the course of their lives. That gets us external accomplishments. That's important. And there's another level of never ever giving up. And that has to do with letting go, with awareness, with growing awareness, with a depth of understanding of who we are and, and, and forgiving ourselves for our many foibles and forgiving those around us. And I think that that is a level of never giving up that sometimes we miss in our quest to not give up external power and control and success. One thing that you said in the information that you sent me, and I'd like you to expound on this, please, and that is that your mission is to share true stories of survival against all odds. Is this, are you referring here to your books or on another platform? <laughs> all of the yeah, above. Yes and yes. It is surviving against all odds. And I would say that it's beyond survival in terms of economic or external success. But surviving as a whole forgiving person, surviving at the soul level is what we really come down to, especially in the first and, and third books. The memoir, my memoir, and what in the end is my father's memoir in Healing the Wound, are books about not only surviving against all, they are, they are stories of survival against all odds. And we have our own personal stories we could get into if you'd like to hear about those of surviving against odds. And I think the deeper story is to get beyond that survival and say, there's something even more meaningful that maybe we are called to do this time around here on earth. Survival in the first half of life in, in, in terms of external measures is very important. But then understanding that there's a need to go deeper and understand something beyond that survival. If we continue to try to uh, play the same game, this is our opinion and one that we can certainly cite other authors on, if we continue to play that same game that we played throughout our early life, <laughs> which led us to surviving and to economic success and to respect in the communities we are part of, we say, gee, you know, I did pretty well at that. I think I'll do more of that. Eventually, it is at least our experience that it becomes less and less satisfying and that there's another game to play. And letting go of that early game and moving on to a later one was laid out very nicely by Arthur C. Brooks, who's a New York Times columnist that you may be familiar with. And his book was... From Strength to Strength. Thank you. I was uh, going to quote <laughs> the other book that's sitting over here. Going from Roll to Soul is the number of another book that talks about the same thing, that you got to move on to another game. And I see so few people actually doing that. You know, we get, point. get addicted to the survival game uh, and play it long after it's no longer relevant. Well, I knew I was good at that one. Let me keep playing. <laughs> yeah. 
Now, is there anything that either one of you or both of you would like to say in summary? I, my summary comment would be that life continues to provide learning opportunities and that it never, ever ends. We never, ever want to give up on learning and growing and becoming our best selves. And that requires the kind of vulnerability Marlena talked about earlier, I think, with ourselves yeah. and with other people. And that's been a challenging piece of the relationship Marlena and I have had for 30 some years at this point in time. We are both fiery characters and we get in each other's faces and we still <laughs> do it. What happens now is our writing gets better as a result. Of, of course. But what happens now is that we move beyond those fiery moments a lot faster than we used to. If we go back to our early life together, um, we were fiery and yet we couldn't stay away from each other. And I recall one very distinctive example. I will tell the short, short version of, um, we just had one of these fiery fights and I am uh, going out as our consultant to teach a team building session the next day. Now we can't get along, but we're, I'm going to teach a team building <laughs> session to other people. And I'm packing my bag and I'm thinking like a two-year-old, she's going to be sorry. She'll get it to her head when I'm gone. That And Marlena does this incredible thing. She comes to me. She was actually at the bottom of a staircase and I was at the top. And she said, Ed, I wasn't listening. What is it you want me to hear? Hmm. Total vulnerability. Yes. And that, that moment changed our relationship forever. It wasn't the end of our learning in our oh, relationship. Oh, no, no. Of course. No. Absolutely. An example of needing to grow and learn, and yeah. we're still trying. We're yeah. still at it. Never give up. Never give up on growing and learning. I think that that's the bottom line. And uh, if if uh, any of your listeners uh, would like to know more, I assume that you might uh, pass along the website. Oh, absolutely, yes. Uh, and the book called has its own web page as well oh, with a trailer. Yes. And all the references are there and, and vignettes and photos and, yeah. Sure. Absolutely. No, this will be uh, on everything will be there on your web page and including, you know, the book links and the other social media links, etc. So and, and, and going to MarlenaField.com and subscribing there would give people updates about the release of our latest book. Excellent. Thank yeah. you. And I want to thank both of you. There are many words that I could use to describe it, but the one that really seems to come to the forefront is warmth. What you are exuding, you know, to the listener is warmth. And that tells me that not only are you giving the message of never ever giving up hope, but also it comes with hugs. <laughs> That's oh, the way I can describe it. As I'm listening to the two of you, there is such a a warmth, a, a desire to help others, a desire to to uh, build others up, a desire to continue to move forward and to help one another. And your mission is far from over, I am sure. And for sharing today, I thank both of you. Any other thing you want to say? And then we will close. 
just want to say thank you so much, Carol, for having us on. It's been absolutely our privilege and pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you. And remember, never, ever give up hope. Thank you for listening to Never, Ever Give Up Hope, featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.